Hello, I'm Marissa Garcia, and thanks for tuning in to Season 4, Episode 4 of Tell Me More. We have discovered that when Harvard students are asked, what are your ties? We uncover a diverse melange of answers, spanning from hand-sewn notebooks to rowing oars to powerful names. In this episode, I interview Derek Taylor, a junior here at the college concentrating in computer science, a field that, after his brutal first taste of its challenge, he was enticed to pursue it instead of mechanical engineering. Proudly Central American and hailing from Miami, Florida, Derek tells us why he finds himself so tied to the culture here in Cambridge, a community that is lustrous in the fountain pens it sells and the education it gives. Here's his story. Would you please introduce yourself? My name is Derek Taylor. I am a junior at Harvard College studying computer science and who will hopefully continue studying it after the semester. <laughs> How's the semester been for you? Terrible. <laughs> so today, may I ask, what are your ties? That's a hard question to answer because ties can be construed in different ways. So in terms of physical locations, I have ties to Miami, Florida, where I spent most of my formative years and Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I currently go to college. In terms of, let's say, what I dedicate a lot of my time to, my ties would be to math, computer science, rowing, YouTube, sleeping. <laughs> oh, fountain pens. Definitely, definitely fountain pens. Definitely tied to that through a lot of spending money. It's also in terms of, let's say, what ties do I feel strong to me than others. Let's say going back to the ties to physical locations, I would definitely say that my tie to Cambridge, Massachusetts is stronger than my tie to Miami, Florida. Despite the fact that I've definitely spent the balance of my time in Miami, that's where I spent the first 18 years of my life, but I definitely feel a stronger connection to Cambridge, which is, it's a strange sensation. It's weird because when I go back to Miami for Thanksgiving or Christmas or spring break, it's home in the way that we use it in college. It's the place where most of your life is based out of. And yet, it doesn't feel like home. I... I love the people I come back to. I love my family, and it's always a pleasure to spend time with them before I sort of get stir-crazy and decide that I need to go back to Cambridge. You know, I don't, I don't even care about the cold. For me, the palm trees and sunshine have worn their novelty thin. 18 years too thin. <laughs> I think this is something that a lot of college students who go away for college face, but when you come back, you sort of notice what you've missed it feels like you stepped out of a world and the world kept going without you and then you sort of step back in and have to get yourself caught up with everything that happened like you have to get yourself caught up with all the family drama and all the places that closed down and got replaced by shopping malls or parking lots or restaurants that are gonna go out of business in three months also <laughs> because that's how it is in miami you're either a shopping mall, a parking lot, a restaurant, or on your way to being one of the three. It always feels weird. And on top of that, now that I'm in college and then I go to Cambridge, whose sort of spirit and atmosphere I feel more inclined to, I now come back to Miami and all the things that I didn't like about it 
I don't like even more because I have something to sort of put it in reference to. So if I talk about how much I hate driving in Miami, then I could say, oh, I wouldn't have to do that in Cambridge. I could just take the T or I could just walk. One thing I do love about Miami that Cambridge will never beat it on, though, is the Hispanic culture because I got some good Hispanic food in Miami, man. It is it is incredible, which is more than I can say for Cambridge. Cambridge still has a long way to go on that front, but I, I have faith that it'll get there eventually. So you say that you really appreciate Hispanic culture in Miami, Florida, something that you definitely connect to that you haven't really found of equality in Cambridge, Massachusetts yet. So have there been any hubs of Hispanic culture that you've encountered so far here? For specifically hubs, I'm inclined to say East Boston. It's probably the closest to a hub of Hispanic culture that Boston in general has. Cambridge is a bit of a harder find. It's not to say that I can't find Hispanic people. Definitely plenty of those around here. I remember one time when my dad came to visit me, at the end of sophomore fall, I took him to Noakes, this pizza place nearby, which he remembers going to when he was a grad student at Tufts and would visit Harvard Square on the weekends. And I remember we went there and we ordered our food, we got it, we ate. And then as we're walking out, he tips at the front. And then he tells me, in the future, when you come to this place, always remember the tip because I recognize that some of the guys behind the counter are Central Americans and, you know, there are not a whole lot of us out here in Cambridge, so try and support them whenever you can. So now, every time that I go to Noakes, I do my best to tip them well as a way of supporting my people, the Central Americans. It's funny because with Hispanic culture, it's not simply a matter of being Hispanic, but your tie is stronger if you are part of the same subset of Latin American culture. So it's one thing to be generally Hispanic versus both being Central American or both being from the same country in Central America like Nicaragua or even being from the same small part of Nicaragua. Some of those are each smaller and smaller tie is tighter. Yeah, good Hispanic culture is hard to find around here. It's not to say you can't find it, but you really got to dig deep. So back to Miami, Florida, at what point did you realize that you felt that you didn't fully resonate with the rhythm of Miami, Florida? Was it before you got into Harvard? Was it as soon as you stepped into Cambridge, Massachusetts? Did you even know what it was that you were searching for? Oh, no, I knew I didn't like Miami. (laughs) It was not something that like I waited that I found out the moment that I came to Harvard. No. I knew that Miami had what I felt were problems because my dad, so for some context, he went to Tufts for graduate school to study mathematics. And he would often tell me about how things in Boston were a lot different because, you know, for one, the public transport system here is way better than what we have in Miami. Boston is a lot more walkable. And in general, Boston is a very self-assured city. In the sense that it doesn't try to impress you. It knows that it's a very old city with a lot of history to it. And it is that. It doesn't try to throw it in your face necessarily. 
That's not to say that you would be hard pressed to realize that it is because they have plaques everywhere saying famous person X, Y, and Z died here on years A, B, and C. It's not hard to find out that information, but it doesn't throw it in your face. In Miami, however, you definitely get the sense that it's a city that still has some maturing to do in terms of where its priorities are. There's not a whole lot of intellectual enterprise in Miami the way there is here. You have here Harvard, MIT, Northeastern, Boston University, Boston College, a lot of top 50 schools where you have some of the smartest people in the world coming to study. And Miami doesn't have that. Miami is definitely more of a service-based economy where a lot of our revenue is from people coming to hang out, go to hotels, go on the beach, come for vacation. There's not really, let's say, a lot of intellectual capital from our universities, which is strange because you do have human capital, but it's usually unrealized because what ends up happening is some of the immigrants who come to Miami were educated in their own countries. They say they were Uber drivers or janitors or nurses who were doctors, scientists, engineers, lawyers back in Latin America. But then they come to the U.S. and they can't really capitalize on that knowledge either because they can't afford to take the necessary test to get the right certification or they have to take care of a child. So that's not to say that there aren't smart people in Miami, but usually they don't get the chance to exercise that intelligence the same way that you could here. And what have you found fulfilling in terms of the intellectual enterprise here so far at Harvard? That there's a lot of it. <laughs> I mean, you have some smart people here, flat out. There's no doubt about it. You meet some people here that really challenge you and might even engender some insecurity in you, but that's good. That's what I came here for. You meet people that help you learn, help you get better, not just necessarily in terms of intelligence or mental matters, but also in the physical. You know, I'm reminded of my roommate, Alex. He and I got to know each other when I decided to start exercising in college. And I was intimidated because going to the gym as a first timer is an intense experience. You walk in there and you see people who look like they've been doing this for years. Some of them have been. And you think, how could I ever get to that level? Why am I even trying? What am I doing here? The first thing he told me was that you shouldn't focus on where they are because they had to start where you are. Just focus on where you want to be. And then you be closer to getting there. And what are you studying here at the college? Computer science. And tell me a little bit more about your journeys thus far with that and perhaps what led you to choosing that as a concentration. Oh, this is this is this is always a good story to tell here at Harvard because <laughs> it is definitely not the decision that most Harvard students would make. <laughs> so this I flash back to what was it? It was January fourth, twenty seventeen. And I remember that the CS50 grades had come out and it was the end of my freshman fall. I took CS50, which is the intro of CS course at Harvard. And I got a C on it. And I told my mom about it because she sort of knows how I'm doing academically at all times. And I remember 
her sort of looking at me and telling me, so you're going to switch to applied math, right? I'm like, nah, I'm going to stay and do this. I'm going to stay with CS. And then I realized something. No matter how old you get, your mom can always strike a very serious fear in you. Because that's what she proceeded to do to me for the succeeding hour. I don't remember a lot of what she said. I just remember having the distinct feeling of the earth shaking under me. And I know it wasn't an earthquake because it was in Miami and we don't get earthquakes. So I sat there and I took her restrained tirade because it never got to the point where she was making a lot of noise, but I could definitely tell she was pissed. I stood my ground as much as I could stand. And then she went to sleep, as did I. And then I remember the next morning she talked to me and she said, Hey, listen, I'm really sorry about what happened last night. That was a very visceral reaction. Just know that I support you in this decision. And if it means that maybe it's not always going to be guaranteed that you'll do well, then that's, that's what it is. And so... From that point, I decided that I wanted to stick to CS for a while. And that's sort of what it was. I didn't, I don't know that I'm going to do computer programming or CS research or whatever when I get out of here. I just had faith that the exercise of taking on this challenge and beating it would yield personal rewards that maybe won't be reflected in my GPA, but will be reflected in the way that I carry myself and the way that I respond to challenge which is definitely not the logical calculus that most people here would do. I'd say that most people at Harvard would have definitely switched to applied math or something that wouldn't have been a lot of work or that wouldn't sound as intimidating, which they're right to. I'm not going to sit here and say that they're bad people for avoiding challenge or not taking risks, but I mean, they're sort of responding to what they value and I'm responding to what I value. And that'll likely take us different places. Whether or not one is better than the other, I'm not going to make any judgments on. That's just going to go to different places. You speak of this dichotomy between how you have chosen, quite deliberately so, to direct yourself through your studies here at Harvard, especially in comparison to um, how your peers do so. And you yourself acknowledge the fact that the two are somewhat disparate yet require respect between the two to what extent have you found it difficult to navigate through this dichotomy i don't i don't think it's a matter of navigating it so that aspect of people i find out later people in my orbit definitely follow that line of thought my roommate chris comes to mind but then i also have people in my orbit who aren't necessarily that way like alex Alex didn't necessarily do engineering because it was easy. Here at Harvard, it's definitely not easy for him. But it's what he responds to, and that's what he likes to do. Chris is very different. He decides that he wants to do the thing that's going to have the least risk of not panning out, and that won't require a lot of work or exertion from him. I don't think of it as navigating. It's the good thing about Harvard is that you can find your group. If you're someone who's a risk taker, who just wants to take the fight and win it, you can find people like that around here. If you're someone who's risk averse and not really interested in the fight, you can find those people here. He 
you. It's not a matter of navigating it. I will say that sometimes, even as someone who doesn't try to look for affirmation from other people, it's sometimes hard to be in the minority in that dichotomy. To sit there and take the fight and take the blows that come with the fight and see other people doing less work, taking less blows, taking less fights, and yet somehow they seem to be winning more. Or winning in a more tangible manner, I guess is the better way to put it. Winning in the sense of getting very prestigious job offers or maybe getting more money or getting more what we would consider typically prosperous positions. So there definitely is that part of it that you would have to think about. That it's not very easy to ignore because it's not that hard to find people who have that line of thought. So in a little bit of a twist from that, I cannot help but think while you're speaking about that of just kind of how you've established yourself as perhaps, I wouldn't necessarily assert different, but rather that you are decidedly proceeding to the V of your own choice. And so with that, I also want to return to what you said about you having a passion for fountain pens, which is definitely quite something that I have not heard too much <laughs> otherwise. Would you at all like to speak to that in terms of how that has festered in Cambridge? I don't know if passion is the right <laughs> word. I happen to like it. My wallet would say otherwise. It started for me when I graduated from high school and two of the graduation gifts I got were fountain pens. One of them is a medium nib cross aventura fountain pen from my tia bev and the other was a coeco sport fountain pen burgundy colored my fine nib from my mom's co-worker so that was sort of how the collection got started and i enjoyed writing with them but the habit never really took off in miami because i didn't know of any brick and mortar places where i could get a hold of them in miami and I never really thought to get any fountain pens because I approached writing in a very utilitarian mindset where I just wanted something that would make markings on a page and that would preferably do so for the longest amount of time for the least amount of monetary investment. Then I would say my mind started opening up to the possibility of fountain pens as a hobby when I met Quentin Neros uh, when I went to Elliot and I knew him from before Elliot because he used to play pool and Thayer and he would soundly defeat anyone. <laughs> he would soundly defeat everyone in Thayer without a second thought. I was one of his victims, unfortunately, many times. But then I ended up being placed in Elliot like Quentin. And as I got to talk to him and I got exposed to his fountain pen collection, I thought, huh, should I, am I willing to give this a shot? And then... I saw that there was Bob Slate's stationery nearby, and so at some point I came into some money from a term time job that I had, and I decided, let me see if there's something in here that interests me. And then I walked in. I remember I told the guy at the fountain pen desk in Bob Slate, I'm looking for something cheap and reliable. What do you have? And he directed me to three pens. The Lamy Safari the Coeco Sport, which I already have one of from my graduation gifts, and the Pilot Metropolitan. I ended up getting a Pilot Metro 
that was fine nib. I think I also got some cartridges. Even though I would end up getting an ink bottle instead because it's a better investment in the long run. And I think I got a, a little Japanese notebook that ended up being really nice. And that was sort of how the collection got started. I ended up getting two more online. But now I think I'm making it more of a point to shop at Bob Slate's in particular for that. Because Bob Slate's is one of those small businesses in the square that's been around for a long time. And small businesses in the square have a really hard time staying around. So now it's become not just a way to enjoy my habit, but to also support a business that I really want to see stay in the square for a while. Preserving institutional memory, a fine endeavor. So you do mention back home, you would never be able to find a brick and mortar place like Bob Slate, for example. Bob Slate is probably not even 10 minutes from Elliot, accessible by walking. Now, does this at all represent to you the differences between what you love about Cambridge and what you perhaps don't ascribe to back in Miami? Oh yeah, definitely. Just that Bob Slate, I think, and my physical relationship to it encapsulates everything that's different about Cambridge versus Miami because here in Cambridge, things are set up so that walking between two locations is really easy. It's easier than it would be in Miami by several orders of magnitude, I would say. But also, I think it speaks to sort of the culture of the two places. To give you an idea of what would catch on in Miami, things like luxury car rentals or big jewelry stores are big in Miami. While you can have a stationary store like Bob Slate stick around in Cambridge for a while, and the reason why there's such a huge difference there is because fake jewelry and luxury car rentals both fall under the umbrella of what would be colloquially described as flexing. When you get these things, you're getting them because you want to make a sort of impression on people. You're getting it because you want to show people that you are of a certain walk of life at this point. Or you at least want to give the impression of it, whether or not you necessarily are. Whereas fountain pens, fountain pens make an impression. That can't be denied. If you take out a fountain pen and you start writing with it, people will look at you a little differently. But that's not the reason you buy a fountain pen. You buy a fountain pen because you want to enjoy the experience of writing, physically speaking, and you want to invest in a product that's going to service you for a very long time. Because disposable rollerballs and ballpoints, even though they're perfectly serviceable, they're very good from a utilitarian sense, but they won't last you very long. And writing in them is not as pleasant as writing with a fountain pen. So do I think that people who don't buy fountain pens are somehow misguided? Hardly. They are responding to what's important to them. And I happen to be responding to what's important to me. And for me, as someone who does write a lot, even for a student in the quantitative sciences, for me, I write so much that I'd want to enjoy it. I'm smiling because I just cannot help but think that as much as you may try to deny it, that I feel like fountain pens and your attitude towards them and how you perceive the culture around them to be is perfectly resonant to also how you direct yourself in the culture here at Harvard. 
you say here that the fountain pens, as soon as you take it out and start scribing in your notebook, quantitative formulas or notes in the Elliott Dining Hall, for example, people take notice to the fact that your pen is quite different and that there is an inkwell <laughs> right beside you. And it's definitely something that stands out. And you don't equate that to any sense of superiority. Instead, you view it as responding to what's important to you. And I think that's very, very parallel <laughs> almost to the idea of that you don't really look at maybe perhaps your <laughs> C in computer science as something that was at all an impediment, but rather a reason why you should keep striving forward, which is something that other people may have responded to differently as well. And that definitely makes some people take a step back and notice that different stark approach that you took. What does your family look like back at home? First, I have a lovely little sister, 16 years old, who is currently a junior in high school. And she's going through the gauntlet of tests and college application essays that characterize the last two years of high school. So I always catch news about that from my mom. And it's always interesting wondering how I managed to get through that. But some questions might be better left unanswered. <laughs> then there's my mom. She had me at 17 and she came to the U.S. not long afterwards. And despite knowing English as a second language, she's in the field of law right now, which is quite an interesting choice for her because a lot of people who have English as a first language would find law hard to study, let alone people who are learning it later on in their lives. So she's definitely one of, if not the strongest person I know. Then there's my dad. I give a lot of thanks to my mom for showing me what strength looks like. And I give a lot of thanks to my dad because he demanded from me that I be good at math growing up. And that sort of set me on the path where I am now because as I got better at math, I grew to like it more. And so as I came to college, I was less intimidated studying things like computer science or math or applied math because I knew math and I liked it. And so I was willing to do it more, which from a young age, that's a rare trait in a lot of people. A lot of people in the United States have a very adversarial relationship with math. It was very common for me to hear that people would say oh I really wanted to be an engineer but then it was the math that beat me whether it was algebra or calculus or differential equations or something that was something I heard a lot especially in my dad's line of work because he was a community college professor in math in Miami which is a quite a hazardous profession actually because in a small community like Miami it would happen a lot where my family and I we would go out to eat in Miami and it would turn out that our waiter or waitress was a student of my dad and so every time that would happen my mom would sort of have to ask my dad did this student pass your class or not because if so we're gonna have to be really careful with the food <laughs> might spit in it or something <laughs> but yeah my dad being a math professor and teaching me to be really good at math sort of set me on the path that I'm now where for me, math, it's just sort of a part of my life. I've grown to enjoy it, to appreciate its power, both as a computational tool to solve problems, but also as a way to reason about the world. 
when I hear your mom's story, especially, I can't help but think that your own has become an iteration in the sense of she was choosing a field of law, which you remark is very difficult when English is your first language, much less your second. And here you are again, also tackling CS anyway. Now that we've touched back on Miami, Florida, let's hop back to Cambridge. I'm interested to hear how your family looks here. (laughs) With love and adoration, they absolutely love Cambridge. It holds a very fond place in their heart. And they never hold it against me when I sort of start really wanting to come back because they think, yeah, I'd want to come back here too. For my mom and dad, they really love it here. My sister loves it in Cambridge also, although she's not too keen on the idea of coming to Harvard. And I don't blame her for it. I mean, I love Harvard, but I definitely also know it's not for everyone. Not from the perspective that people here can't succeed, but definitely to survive in Harvard, you either have to be someone who's very willing to run the race, run the rat race, or just be willing to do what I do and do whatever it is that interests you. And you've spoken of Elliot, where you live. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that has come to characterize your days here? Elliot plays a huge role in my life. It's it's weird. I The weird thing about my relationship with Elliot is that I'm not a part of the official Elliot House apparatus per se. I'm not part of any big committees here, or any big teams. Well, I mean, I'm part of Elliot Boat Club, but that was just me deciding that I was interested in rowing and then and now I decided I'm still interested in rowing. It was just something where I went to a lot of different events and sort of became a presence because I interacted with people, which is very strange because I would definitely say that I'm not a super social person. If you were to look at me versus my two blockmates, Alex and Chris, I'm definitely in the middle of the two of them, both in terms of social skills and technical skills. I'm not the hermit that Alex is, but I'm also not the social butterfly that Chris is. And yet somehow, at my level of interaction, I still manage to establish myself as a presence in the house where people know my name and they have an idea of who I am. And what are some of those favorite moments? One that comes to mind for me that's very recent was when I was talking with Galen Doug once. And at some point I was talking to Doug about this course I was taking at ER 18. And then Gail, at some point, she cuts me off and says, you know, Derek, I've noticed something about you, that whenever you refer to Doug, you refer to him as sir or doctor, and yet you refer to me as Gail. Why? Why do you do that? And so obviously this puts me in an awkward position because of Gail and Doug, who are the faculty deans of the house, or house masters, as they were once called, I refer to the male faculty dean with an article of authority or respect, and yet I refer to the female with a first name, which is sort of much more of a colloquial greeting. And so at this point, I was kind of stuck for an answer. I didn't really know what was the best answer to give. So in the face of no better options, I decided to be honest. And so I said, well, Gail, here's the thing. You're like, you're the house mother. You are more involved in the day-to-day operations here. You help keep this place running. 
Meanwhile, Doug is more like the distant father who's always at work. And that was the best decision I could have thought of at the time by virtue of being the most outrageous, but still outrageous enough to be funny. Because both Gail and Doug laughed and they loved it. Doug thankfully took no offense, although I'll be careful to avoid the course he's giving next year on ethics and technology because he's not going to make that course easy and I don't imagine he's going to make it easy for me after that comment. There's also the bet that Nedra always reminds me of whenever I see her. This one has a little bit of backstory to it. So freshman year, I used to play basketball in Malkin Athletic Center. And I was playing with my friend Shivam. And at some point, we were just sort of playing around. We weren't playing a game. And then he challenges me. He says, I bet if I make a post hook over you, then you have to dress up as a clown for an entire day. And understand my position here. Shivam's a short dude. He's like five foot five, five foot six. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm six foot one. In my mind, I'm thinking there's no way this guy could actually score over me from the post of all things. And so I took him on his offer. And so he gets the ball. He's backing me down the post. He's not really making a lot of progress. And then he shoots the ball over my head and it goes in. And in an unrelated note, I had egg on my face. Or put more bluntly, something blew up in my face at that exact moment. And then from that point forward, he kept on reminding me, oh, you need to dress up as a clown, you need to dress up as a clown. And I kept putting him off because I wasn't going to do it. Also, this was around the time when there was the killer clown scare. So at that point, he told me, okay, okay, I'll give you a rain check for now because I don't want you to get killed out here. So then he and I ended up in Elliot together. And then at some point, Nedra Massenberg, one of the tutors in Elliot, caught wind of the bet. She took it upon herself to consistently remind me that I need to dress up as a clown. Even after the man Shivam who scored over me left Elliot, he lives in Winthrop now, he doesn't care about the bet anymore, but she's taking it upon herself to keep telling me you need to dress up as a clown to the point where she's pregnant now and she told me you need to dress up as a clown or you're going to disappoint my son. So somehow she's invoking her son to guilt trip me into dressing up as a clown. I'm strongly considering the possibility of somehow dressing up as a clown in the Elliot House Housing Day music video, but I'd have to talk with the Hoko about how that would go down. Do you have any last thoughts? Listen. <laughs> One thing I've learned throughout my now five semesters here at Harvard, because I just finished my fifth one today after taking my last final, it's a really weird place. You'll meet some people who are very smart, some people who give very convincing impressions of smart people, and you'll meet some people who definitely make you wonder how they ended up here. How I sort of ended up where I am now, where I just sort of do things the way I want to do them, I wouldn't say throw caution to the wind, but I don't really abide by the same restrictions that other people do even though i've encountered more mistakes and taken more losses as a result i think it's overall been a positive experience for me and so i would encourage other people to within the bounds of their situation try and take advantage and be more 
fearless and willing to take chances and venture into the unknown. Because really, as much as I have lost and as much as I've taken a lot of blows, none of them have killed me yet. I've managed to survive them all and I'm still here. I haven't flunked out yet, thankfully. So really, failure hurts. It does in any arena, whether it be academic or personal, romantic, it hurts. It is designed to be unpleasant. It stings, but it need not be fatal. So just always remember that. Do what interests you. And the interest won't make it easier to do the work, but it will make you more willing to do it. Thank you so much for talking with us here today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Tell Me More. If you know a Harvard undergrad whose story our podcast absolutely must capture, please email us at podcast.harvardindependent.com so we can recruit them as soon as possible. You can also visit harvardindependent.com slash podcast for more information. You can listen to us there, or you can even listen to us on the podcast app on your iPhone. As always, thanks to the staff of the Indy for supporting our ever-growing podcast team, especially as we begin to celebrate the Indy's 50th anniversary. You can follow the Harvard Independent on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as forever promised, all of those links will be available in the description. That's all for now. You'll hear us when we return with our season finale. I'm Marissa Garcia, and this is Tell Me More, brought to you by the Harvard Independent.